Welcome back to our Women in Real Estate podcast series. In this episode, partner and head of the real estate group, Claire Breeze, is joined by Melanie Leach, Chief Executive at the British Property Federation. Melanie joined the BPF in 2015, following nine years as Director General of the Food and Drink Federation. Her role at the BPF is to champion UK real estate and to promote a long-term sustainable partnership between governments and the sector to deliver a high-quality built environment and to create wealth. Melanie is also a fellow of the RSA and a trustee of LandAid, the property industry charity. She was also awarded a CBE for services to the food and drink industry. Claire, over to you. Melanie, we're delighted to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Um, we're just we're just going to talk a little bit about your career, um, you know, what your current role is, you know, and, and your observations on um, how the path that you followed to, to, to reach where you are today. Um, obviously, there's quite a lot going on in the property market at the moment. So um, it would be amiss if I, if I weren't just to um, mention that and, and, and ask your views on it. Um, the industry is clearly concerned about pricing property transactions in the current market uh, due to uncertainty about interest rates, construction costs, energy prices and labour shortages. Do you think there's still opportunities to deliver a high quality built environment and create growth in the current market conditions? Absolutely, I do. I mean, you're right, it's um, uncertain times and uncertainty is not good for uh, the property sector in particular. Um, And we will see, you know, I think continuing uh, downward trends in valuations for for a period. And that creates opportunity, of course, as well as uh, challenge. Um, But, you know, underneath that, you know, the fundamentals of UK property remain extremely sound, I think, you know, we've got a uh, an imbalance between uh, supply and demand, not only in the residential sector, but in many parts of the commercial property sector too. Um, we've got uh, an, a political agenda from whichever uh, government, you know, uh, current government, ne- potential change of government, you know, which is very focused on improving people's quality of lives, improving productivity, improving growth, and real estate underpins all of those things, you know, and we know that a lot of our town centres as the retail footprint changes will need repurposing, regenerating, and again, that's, you know, that's a real estate story. Um, so, I, so I'm really confident that, you know, over a long term, which is the view that the property sector takes, you know, the fundamentals are sound, there's real... Uh, reason to be to be positive you know but it it's, it's looks a bit turbulent in the short term <laughs> absolutely and and the one thing which is quite reassuring about the real estate industry is it tends to be quite cyclical so um even if there is a you know a short period of uncertainty or, or confusion um you know that should that should resolve itself smooth out and and pick up for the future yeah i think you know anyone who's worked in the industry uh for more than 10 years I guess you know has has been through a downturn before <laughs> you know what what what's interesting I think you know it is overlaying on top of that sort of you know kind of cyclical um curve that the property industry is used to going through the amount of you know, political challenge and uncertainty the amount of you know global um and local factors you know I'm, I'm not sure that you know that's this is sort of just a normal downturn or normal you know, change in the cycle you know so that that means it's hard to predict you know how where 
where the downturn takes us, but it also means it's quite hard to predict where the upturn might take us as well. And that's where you have to come back to the fundamentals are strong. So there's every reason to believe that, you know, this, um, although it feels very odd at the moment, you know, it will come back. Um, and actually, I suppose the other thing to say is, and we may come on to talk about this some more, is, you know, that uh, the direction of travel and the core of business um, visions and strategies, you know, it is about net zero. It is about moving increasingly to thinking of ourselves as a customer facing sector. I don't see those things changing fundamentally. Um, and, and so it almost kind of, if the political heat comes off a little bit on net zero, I don't think that will mean that any, my members certainly will stop and change their focus on net zero because everyone understands how important it is. Absolutely. And and there's such a, there's now such a focus on ESG um, and it, it feels like that train has left in the right direction and, and will 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 keep powering forward, which is which is great for for numerous reasons. Um, you've had a very interesting and varied career. Uh, what attracted you to the property industry? And c- could you talk a little bit about your journey to becoming chief executive of the BPF? Yes, of course. Um, so I started my working life as a police officer. Um, so public service was sort of in my genes and what what drove me. Um, and I was a police officer for four years in London. And then I moved into the civil service um, and spent a chunk of my career, really building my career in the civil service, doing a whole load of different jobs. Because the great thing about the civil service is it's one employer, but the range of jobs that you can do within it are, are absolutely, you know, almost, I think, unparalleled so I was lucky enough to sort of see interesting jobs and think oh I'd quite like to go and do that and and be able to do that um but I got to a point I suppose in my career and and as part of that into rail regulation into running a local authority uh membership organization for police authorities when they existed and they don't exist anymore um and then I went back to the cabinet office as director of communications uh, and that was at a time when just after I'd had my second child, so I had two young young kids. Um, and I suppose at that point, I took the judgment that um, I didn't want to be in a role where um, I was having to be around to be at the beck and call in case ministers wanted me, mm-hmm. rudely, because uh, quite often they didn't. And, you know, um, so, I, so I decided to move out of the civil service service um and to look for something where I could carry on being involved in public policy um and the things that matter to me um but but in a slightly different role and context and that took me to be director general of the food and drink federation which is a membership association like the bpf but for food and drink manufacturing companies Uh, and I did that for 10 years and then I was approached to apply for this role um and why this role I suppose why food and drink and why this role well you know, food and drink and shelter are the sort of two most basic human needs. And I've been lucky enough to sort of represent both of those great sectors um, from an industry perspective. And so that's sort of very much links to my, you know, what want to serve the public good to, you know, work on issues that matter to people's lives. So I suppose that's it, really. <laughs> that's, that's fascinating. And it, it's it's really interesting to hear how you you sort of evolved your your career so that you could manage both the family and and having fulfilling role yourself um which i think um is 
becoming a bit easier nowadays now that particularly since we've got flexible working arrangements we can work from home have you found the whole working from home side of it yes um I'm sure my experience isn't greatly different to lots of people listening to this I mean I it was just such an extraordinary time wasn't it um absolutely you know overnight from going to work commuting to work five days a week to sitting here for five days a week um, was just extraordinary. And you look back and wonder how we did it, um, how everybody coped, you know, and of course, I'm not suggesting for a minute it was easy, you know, going to work and commuting is hard for people. Actually being at home, particularly when, you know, you don't have kids in school, you don't have a lot of support mechanisms you might have put in place um to cope with being able to commute you know just taken away from you so you know it was really hard for people and of course I've got a lovely home office here um that's relatively easy and comfortable for me lots of people were trying to work in really really difficult conditions um but we all managed somehow and I think it did accelerate you know that trend which had started um but was able to take a great leap forward in terms of envisioning what's possible to enable people whatever their circumstances and whatever the things they're trying to juggle to work productively in a different way than a model of going to an office five days a week so I think that's actually you know if we can capture the best of that that is a fantastic leap forward we've been able to make. I agree and I think it was a great leveler as well because in the past it's perhaps been women with um, childcare or elderly parents a responsibility who had been sort of pushing the boundaries of working from home working flexibly and then suddenly the whole working um, environment was was working from home mm-hmm. and and I think it was a great leveler and, and actually I think it's it's wonderful to see all different people for all different reasons now choosing to work a couple of days from home um, and it's there's no sort of stigma attached to it anymore. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and I think it's important as a leader, you know, to, to, to set an example. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you genuinely want a culture of everybody being in the office, you have to be in the office all the time uh, and not taking advantage of your nice, cosy home office in the, in the, in the suburbs or outside London. Um, and then people can decide whether or not that's a culture they want to work in, you know, because this is an employee's market. So people have choices and they'll make those choices. If you want to set a culture that hybrid working is fine, uh, then you need to to walk that walk too, actually. And you need to say it's fine. Uh, You need to do it um, and you need to demonstrate it. The the, the interesting thing is for me uh, is the learning about how you work differently if you're working in a hybrid way. So, you know, I then go to my office and sit behind my laptop for eight, nine hours doing my emails, because what's the point? I can do that sitting here Mm. at my home office. You know, I go to work to meet people. So I try and fill my days with face to faces internally with my team, with my stakeholders, with my members. And then I'll reserve the days I'm at home. That's when I'll, you know, either be on Zoom and Teams meetings sometimes. But, you know, that's that's the space when I can say, okay, you know, productively, I can now crack through all those emails or read all those documents that I haven't done during the week so you have to work in a different way I think to, t- to take full advantage of it but that's I, I agree productive. yeah and it is productive because you say because you've had the face for meetings when you're in the office when you're at home you've got sort of quiet time and headspace to actually think about things and um mm. and, and focus on on perhaps the reading and the writing yeah as, as you've been through your career 
Do, have you felt supported um, in terms of uh, seeking promotion to senior roles? Um, I, I've never felt unsupported. Yeah. Um, I've, if I'm very honest, I've largely done my own thing and been allowed to do it. So to that extent, I've been supported. I've not. I've been very, very lucky um, in that I've never really um, needed to lean on support, you know, because I was struggling or because I felt there were barriers in the way. Um, so I've, I've been. I think I've been very lucky in my career, but certainly I've always felt um, that, that the opportunities were there for me. Uh, I've always tried to make sure that you know everyone believes that opportunities are there for them, um, and and I've seen certainly situations where that's not been the case. You know, and I think it's on all of us, isn't it? You know, men or women, yeah. you know, whatever our you know positions, you know, you know, to to be active uh, in opposing those kind of situations in supporting people in those situations where we see them, and I think that's another change, certainly within the property sector, you know, I've, I've seen over the last few years as we've started to sort of engage more as a BPF to try and show some leadership around what diversity means, what inclusion means, how you value it, how you support it. You know, it's it's as much about, I think, you know, um, stepping, being prepared to step in uh, where you see uh, someone struggling, where you see a situation you're not comfortable with actually saying so and not just walking away because you don't feel you can. And I think we're getting much better at enabling people to do that. I agree. I, th- I think, you know, you raised two two valuable points. There. One, one is, you know, people feeling empowered to ask for help and feeling empowered to actually express where they want their career to go in a way that perhaps um, they haven't been able to in the past and encouraged to do that. Um, and also, again, it's, it's the stepping in and, and calling out where behavior is inhibiting people from progressing careers for whatever reason. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned the, the BPF had, um, you know, been looking at some initiatives. Could you could you talk about some of the initiatives they've been looking at to, to help empower people to, to reach senior positions through diversity? Yeah, yeah of course. Yes. Yeah. So when um, if I sort of wind back, I suppose, six years, seven years, when I first joined the BPF, um, we at that stage um, didn't have a sort of a clear strategy around diversity and inclusion um and i think that was partly because um you know our focus was on policy so we sort of you know we we didn't necessarily feel that um we had a role to play we didn't have the expertise to get directly involved in those conversations but i took the view that it was really important as the industry's um representative body that we at least you know were vocal and clear about our values and about the importance of diversity and inclusion um, so the first thing we did was to create a statement of principles, which was exactly that. It was our position statement that said, you know, we think this is, you know, important and we think it's actually mission critical because if you don't, you know, if you don't, if you're not a diverse and inclusive and welcoming organisation, if you're not tapping into all of the talent that's available and using it effectively, you know, you don't have a sustainable and long term successful future as a business. Um, and we said, you know, we'll give you our, you know, we've got a reputation as the BPF, you know, 
we said what we want to do is work with partners who are experts and who are focused on driving this agenda. And we will give you our brand, you know, so we'll give you um, our platform um, and we will support you to amplify your messages. So we chose a number of partners to work with, people like Real Estate Balance, you know, who were just getting started then, we are focused on gender diversity and bringing women through to senior levels, freehold the um, LGBTQ plus network. Um, we chose Purple, which is a disability charity, uh, not a property sector specific one, but working across all business sectors to um, raise um, issues around disability, both within the workforce and with customers and supporting customers with disabilities. Uh, and um, then pathways to property. So trying to get more people from more diverse backgrounds and disadvantaged backgrounds into the property sector. And, and we did a lot of work, you know, and they wanted different things. They they saw different values from the partnership because they were in different places and, and operated in different ways. And then over time, we've added to that group of partners, but we still primarily work through our partners. Um, and then internally, you know, we've done a lot. So we created BPF Futures, our network for young professionals, which is a fantastically diverse community. And they we have an advisory board that runs it itself. So we didn't kind of run it for them. Um, you know, we said, you create the network you want. And again, you will give you our brand, but look after it. Don't mess it up for me because it's quite a valuable asset for me. Uh, and that's fantastic because they do all sorts of really interesting things. Um, and we've increasingly embedded them in our mainstream work so that we're bringing more diverse voices to the table. Um, we got the chair of the Futures Advisory Board sits on our main board. We've got our committees populated with people from the Futures community. Our annual conference this year was jointly opened by our Futures Chair and our President, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we also set ourselves targets. So we've got a target of 30% female representation on our all of our committees. Now, you might say that should be 50% and you'd be quite right, but you know, the reality is it's in it. We, we have to reflect the industry and the, the people that members put forward. Um, and at the moment, in some disciplines, it's quite hard, um, you know, because we're still as an industry, it's a work in progress to bring more talented women through into those senior positions. And we tend to have more senior people engage with us. Um, so we will, I'm sure, over time, increase that time. But I've just we've just re populated my main policy steering group and that is 50 50 um, and that will, will stay 50 50 going forward so we're always looking for and we're now looking for ways to bring more diverse voices into more of our into more of our work that's that's um, that's that really is truly inspiring and uh, one of the things that struck me as you were speaking is um you know when we were talking about working from home earlier you said you know you, leaders need to lead by example and you know if you want to come into if you want people in the office you need to be there yourself and and i felt a resonance there when you were talking about the bpf because the the bpf you know to some extent it leads the property industry and therefore you know by by having these really interesting and um, exemplary um, initiatives for diversity you are leading by example and saying you know this is what the property industry should look like um, this is what we're doing and, and I think that's that's fantastic and and really inspiring so thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so whilst on the subject of inspiring, it, it would be remiss for me not to ask this question, which is, ha have there been any role models, female role models in particular, who have inspired your career path? Um, I've, I've, I mean, I've reflected on this um, and it's certainly quite hard to pick out one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, I've, oper I've worked in male dominated 
environment um, for quite a lot of my career. I mean, you know, the Metropolitan Police being the most obvious example. But if I start to think about that, you know, my first um, police station was Paddington Green, where I worked. And there were probably 300 people working in different capacities in, in that station because it was a re, it was a hub for, you know, the area as well as an individual um, police station. Um, it was routine for you to be the only woman on your group that worked in, you, you work in groups on shifts and, you know, I was the only woman on mine. Uh, one shift, I think, out of the four didn't have a woman on it. The others had, you know, a woman each who could come at the same time as me. Um, there was one female sergeant out of probably 20. Um, so she would be my first one because, you know, she was, she was, you know, she proved that you could actually be not just, you know, the the typist or the radio operator or the cleaner, you know. Um, so she would, she would be my, you know, my first one. And, you know, as I've gone on, you know, in every, in every role I've been, you know, I've maybe been certainly the youngest at my seniority, possibly the only woman, you know, there've been, there've been women you know, who I could look to. So Customs and Excise was my first civil service job. Uh, Valerie Strachan, Dame Valerie Strachan, as she became, you know, was the the deputy um, head. You know, she and I worked really closely with her when we were negotiating the single market VAT regime. You know, she again, you know, it was Customs and Excise, you can imagine, is quite a male dominated environment. Um, there were there were no they call the people who run the regional offices so looking after custom control if you've got a customs point the VAT side of things they called them collectors they may still do for all I know uh, there was no female collector there'd never been a female collector at that point um, and I was under pressure for a while to you know to, to agree to become you know on my first promotion the first female collector and that wasn't right for me so I resisted that you know it was quite tempting to you know to be the first of anything yeah. so it's quite cool isn't it you know yeah. um, but I knew that wasn't right for me and I wouldn't have been right for the role so I said no and I went off and did did some did another role within customs um so so I can't I'm not going to point to one what I'm going to say is you know um I've been lucky that there've always been women in senior positions that I could look to and think, okay, there's someone like me. And that's probably, you know, increasingly, you know, as we are changing as a sector, you know, I hope people will be able to do that, you know, whether they're female looking for female role models, whether they're from minorities looking for the role models, you know, increasingly, you know, you need to see people like me who've done well, succeeded, um, and then therefore you can aspire to the same. And I think we're, you know, we're getting better at that, um, but there are still too many you know, board photos on websites that you look at, you know, which, you know, don't necessarily reflect that. And that's, you know, that's a journey we're on and that will change over time. But, you know, people in a hurry, you know, always want to get there much, much quicker, don't don't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think the wonderful thing about there being sort of multiple role models is is you you take a little bit of each of them. You know, you don't need to style yourself on one person. You 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 see a, a variety of role models, male, female, you know, whatever. Um, and actually you say, Oh, I like the way he or she does that, and I don't like the way they do that. So you you pick and choose, and and because you have these 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 varied role models you can actually create your yourself in in the style to which suits you yeah if I've, if, I've, if we've got time I'll give you mm, one, more, one more example so um when I was uh director general of the food and drink federation one year uh, my president um was a very much larger than life alpha male character 
um, who ran the UK part of an American uh, global company. Uh, and as I say, you know, he 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 was, you know, so alpha male. So, you know, he, he used to say to me, you know, um, he'd walk, you, you knew as soon as he walked into the building, let alone the room, you'd know that he was there. And he said, well, I'm Melanie. He said, you know, I, I will think, you know, if you're going to be there, you might, you know, people might as well know it, you know. And, um, but he, he appointed to one of the senior positions in his organisation, um, and I think this person eventually then took on his role. Um, someone who was not like that at all was a very softly spoken man, you know, quite an introvert, you know, quite, you know, quietly efficient, you know, uh, fantastic guy, very, very able, very effective, but nothing like him. And he backed him. Um, and I thought that was quite inspirational because, mm. you know, there are, you know, it, it's so easy, isn't it, to value most the people like you to just think that's the style you know and 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 food and drinks a bit like the properties in that sense you know that the we have these massive larger than life figures you know and never fall into the trap of thinking that you have to be like that to succeed because you don't but actually someone who recognizes that someone completely unlike them with a completely different leadership style can be as effective brackets if not more so potentially than than them I think is a really significant thing to have done I agree because essentially what you're doing is you're recognizing that everyone has different skills and different contributions and just because they're different it doesn't mean they're better or worse yeah they're, they're they're just adding which is you know part of the whole reason for having diverse boards and for um what I think is a huge relief is the fact that there is a general consensus that having a diverse leadership creates a much more um profitable and um uh successful business yeah absolutely and that feels like a very positive note to end on very good Melanie thank you so much for your time today it's been really really interesting and great fun to talk to you um so just a, a very large thank you it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Claire.